Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Hello and welcome back to Madison's Notes. Our guest today is Alexandra DeSanctis. She is a staff writer at National Review and a visiting fellow at the Ethics and Public Policy Center in Washington, D.C. She's as honest and diligent a journalist as you'll find and a friend of mine to boot. So Alexandra, welcome to Madison's Notes. Great to be with you. Uh, Now, you and I graduated within a year or so of one another with, at least in my experience, uh, some of the same sorts of controversies percolating back then as they are now. Uh, Questions about renaming buildings, removing statues, uh, stifled speech and academic inquiry on campus. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your experience at Notre Dame. Are academic freedom and free speech alive and well there? Yeah, in my experience, um, Notre Dame was really a pretty good place to be conservative, obviously to be Catholic. Um, I think I have a pretty, I'd make a pretty good case for Notre Dame still being a a fairly Catholic university, despite the fact that they honored Joe Biden at at my graduation, which was a bit of a letdown on my way out the door. Um, But I I worked for the conservative student paper when I was there and uh, we're funded outside the university. So it's an independent collegiate network paper, the Irish Rover. Uh, So we have a little bit more independence. We could critique the administration, but by and large, we never really had any problems with people trying to silence us or criticize our articles or, or much like that. Um, a little bit of that has been brewing in the last couple of years since I graduated just this past year. Some students, uh, very progressive, kind of radically progressive students were attacking um, by name several authors or, or writers for the Irish Rover, um, you know, mm-hmm. putting their, their articles on a poster and hitting it with a sledgehammer in a video, just these sorts of really aggressive things. But thankfully, nothing like that happened when I was there. I think I might have just missed the kind of oncoming wave of extreme progressivism at Notre Dame. We may have missed it at Notre Dame, but it seems that you'd not miss it in in journalism. Uh, We're recording this not long after Barry Weiss uh, resigned from the New York Times. And she explained in her letter of resignation that, and I'm quoting her here, intellectual curiosity, let alone risk-taking, is now a liability at the Times, end quote. She explains that young writers who'd like to advance their careers are quickly realizing, and I think this is also true of young men and women on our college campuses looking to begin their careers, whether in business or academia, politics, uh, they're realizing that the first rule governing their conduct is, quote, speak your mind at your own peril, end quote. Now you're at National Review, so I think you may be insulated from some of this, uh, but I'm, I'm curious what your experience is with the health of uh, free speech and free inquiry in journalism. Yeah, I was really grateful to see that letter um, from Barry Weiss on, upon her resignation. It's too bad. I think that she has to leave. It's unfortunate to see that the New York Times is increasingly becoming a place where someone who really is not a terribly conservative person has a lot of just sort of heterodox opinions, uh, can't find a home there anymore, and was not only criticized by people outside the institution, but apparently uh, ritually criticized and insulted and attacked by her own colleagues, and, and they face no consequences for it. But I will say I was really grateful to see her kind of go out with a bang because she could very well have just said, look, privately, I've had enough. Um, I'm done. Goodbye. And gone off to do her own thing or, you know, follow wherever she may. But to write a letter like that, I think, took a lot of courage. And it was something that, um, you know, people like my colleagues, people like, you know, conservatives criticize the Times along those lines very often. But it, it obviously means a lot more coming from someone 
inside the institution who's experienced the kinds of things that we are pretty sure have been going on there and that we can see as outsiders, uh, but that really needed to be said by someone with the authority to say them. And it's really unfortunate to see um, sort of what has happened to the times, not that it's been anything wonderful in my lifetime, but um, yeah, there are people doing good work and good reporting there. And so to see it become the kind of place where Tom, a sitting Senator, Tom Cotton can't even publish an op-ed without, you know, a week of self-flagellation because a few staffers got angry. It's just unfortunate. And, and I think, you know, a lot of it has to do with Trump and this perceived view among journalists that their number one role is to push back against what they see as a, a bad administration. And to me, I'm in journalism because I want to pursue the truth and I want to write what I believe and I want to share my thoughts and, you know, facts with people because I think they're curious and they want to read a variety of views on a variety of things. They don't want to read one line sort of spoon fed to them uh, and have everything else silenced. Yeah. And, and your pursuit of truth in journalism, which I think is exactly what the profession is, is there for, um, has brought you to being, I think, probably the, the nation's reporter covering abortion and pro-life issues most thoroughly and consistently. Uh, how, how did that come about? How did you come to, the, to abortion and pro-life issues? Was that always an interest of yours? Yeah, to be honest, I, I don't actually remember when I first started caring about this issue so much. I just, as far back as my memory goes, I mean, obviously not to my very young childhood, but even starting in middle and high school, I, I just cared about um, the pro-life cause more than any other political issue. And it's a probably the, the heart of why I care about politics. You know, there's a lot of reasons why politics matters. But to me, if we live in a country that legally sanctions the killing of the innocent on such a, a grotesque scale, um, that really has to be the number one thing on our minds. It has to bother our consciences and we all have to do something, you know, regardless of our profession or our vocation, uh, we all ought to do something about that. And for me, you know, I, I cared about politics, I love writing. And so um, just kind of naturally, it was what I wanted to do. And I was lucky enough to get a job out of college where I was given a lot of freedom and um, just sort of tried to build up expertise on the issue and um, write a lot of reported things about it. And I still do some reporting, but I think because I sort of built up that credibil credibility early on, I was able to transition into more opinion writing and commentary on the subject. I'm really grateful to have the platform that I do. Sure. Uh, well, tell me about your experience covering these issues as a young woman. Um, it seems to me that the greatest ire from the ideological left uh, seems to be reserved for pro-life women. Has that been your experience? Yeah, definitely. And I think I have an advantage in one sense. I think part of why I have the role that I do at National Review is, um, you know, of course, we have men who write about the issue. Ramesh Panur comes to mind. He's been doing this for far longer than I have uh, and very well. But I think you have kind of an advantage as a woman writing about this because you can just dodge the very dumb attack of, well, you're a man, you can't get pregnant, you don't get to talk about this. And of course, no pro-life man is going to say, oh, okay, I'll shut up and walk away, right? But if you're a woman, you already start off sort of a step ahead and you get to be in that conversation and you're given credit by the other side um, in a way that a man is not. So it, it helps me in that sense. But at the same time, I think because of that, the left has a particular hatred for women who kind of use that currency, the sort of identity politics currency to be pro-life. And so there's a lot of, you know, these sorts of, well, you're a gender traitor or you're betraying your sisters or what do you know, or you haven't been pregnant or you're not, you know, you would, you've never had an abortion. So what do you, you know, all these sorts of attacks on you that are much more aggressive than they would be on a man, because in their view, sort of the underpinning um, of the pro-abortion mindset is that women need abortion to be fulfilled and to flourish and to be happy. And so if that's their, one of the key um, components of their argument, to have women out there saying, I don't actually need abortion, women don't need this, and women, in fact, deserve better than this, 
um, really cuts right to the heart of, I think, one of the, the primary falsehoods that they rely on. Yeah. Uh, quickly becoming a theme of this podcast, I think, is that it requires um, a tremendous amount of courage to say what you believe. And in professions like academia, professions like journalism, uh, that's certainly a requirement to, to say what you believe. What would you say to other young women who are, who are struggling with that? They don't like being called a gender traitor. It's difficult to them, but they are pro-life uh, and they're not sure how to, how to take those slings and arrows. Yeah. Well, I would say, first of all, I, I come at this from a rather comfortable position in that I, I have a job where I'm in fact valued because I write about that and care about it. And so it's easy for me to say, well, you just kind of say what you want. That's, I have a career doing that. So I'm, I'm very lucky in that sense. And it's harder if you're on kind of a, an antagonistic college campus, a lot of your friends maybe don't agree with you. Um, that's sort of a different position to be in. But I guess on an issue like this, my view has always been, um, you know, you don't have to be shooting your mouth off all the time about it. But if it comes up, I think because of what we believe it is, it has to change our lives and it has to change the way I, we go about things. Uh, because like I said earlier, if, if this is the killing of the innocent, the same legally sanctioned killing of the innocent, how could we not speak up? How could we not say something about it? And so I guess in a, a more personal context or even a career context, it's all about the way you do it. You have to be tactful. You don't have to be looking for every opportunity to get into a fight. Mm -hmm. But if you're called upon, there are polite but firm ways to say what you believe. Um, and in my view, it's always worth doing, even if there are unfortunate repercussions. Uh, let's broaden the scope a, a little bit. Where's the rest of America today? What do we know about public opinion on abortion? Uh, public opinion has been, I think, shifting in a, a more pro-life direction over the last several decades, which is good to see, but um, it's not in necessarily kind of a label sense. So most often you'll see pro-choice will outrank pro-life as a matter of self-description. Um, over the last couple of years, they've actually evened out a little bit. So about as many Americans say they're pro-life as pro-choice, and it's somewhere around 45% each. Um, but if you look, uh, very few polls are actually helpful on this basis, but if you dig into the polls where they ask really specific questions about types of abortion restrictions, for example, you'll find that most Americans kind of line up with a, a more pro-life position, at least, than you would think. So um, more Americans would ban abortion at all times than would uh, support abortion at any stage of pregnancy. So that's kind of a win. The more hardcore, yeah. intensely pro-life and pro-abortion camps are, um, we sort of have the, the edge there. But in the middle, you have people who maybe call themselves pro-choice, but they would support a ban on abortion after 20 weeks, for example, or they would support um, you know, a ban on selective abortion, sex selective or, or Down syndrome selective abortion, disability-based abortion. Um, so if you look at kind of those more specific areas, it's actually pretty clear that most Americans are not comfortable with abortion outside the first trimester. And so that's not really where I would fall. I don't really want a law like that, but I think that gives you something to work with. And you realize, look, people are just kind of trying to find a place to draw lines. And we have a lot, uh, we can sort of speak across that gap and get people more to where we are by starting with the fact that they're kind of uncomfortable with this to begin with. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that shift over the past several decades to see people taking on more pro-life positions. Why do, why do you think that is? What accounts for that shift? I think a, a really big part of it is um, technology and ultrasound technology. So there's kind of, I think it, it highlights the cognitive dissonance when, you know, your colleague Susie comes in and puts an ultrasound picture on her cubicle. You don't say, oh, congrats on your clump of cells, right? You say, oh, congrats, when's your baby due? Or you have a baby shower. And so to see that life in the womb and to talk about it in that way and then turn around and say, well, if you felt like it, if you don't want it, that's just a clump of cells, that clearly doesn't make sense. Um, 
And I think because people our age have kind of grown up seeing those ultrasound pictures and they're getting more and more realistic, we can get 3D pictures now, um, it makes a difference. And so people, of course, could see that and still support abortion, and they do. But at least there's this acknowledgement that this is a human being. This is something, this is not just a clump of cells. This is another another human being, another person. Um, and probably more often than not, that's why we're seeing some shift, especially on abortion later in pregnancy. So the pro-life movement is the movement of science. That's what I would say. Uh, the, <laughs> we're called anti-science, but I mean, I'm the one acknowledging that this is human. So <laughs> right. The most common argument used by supporters of abortion, I think, runs something like this. Uh, the decision to terminate a pregnancy to abort a child uh, ought to be the pregnant woman, the mother's choice. Uh, she ought to be free to make this decision as she sees fit based on her personal situation, whether it's economic status, personal preparedness, etc. cetera. Uh, the argument can be, and I think typically is, summed up in just one phrase, my body, my choice. How do you respond to that argument? I think the, the first most important thing is to point out that there's actually a second body involved. And so while the, the fetus is inside the mother, that is a separate individual human being. It's with its own distinct DNA. Uh, it's not a tumor. It's not a parasite. It's not a squirrel. This is a, a unique human being. Um, and so while my view is pro-lifers should never say that it's not a unique imposition on women to carry that life to term, more often than not, that child exists because of a choice that not only that woman, but her partner made, right? And so there's a responsibility on the part of the people who brought that life into the world to care for it. You can't just kill it for any number of reasons. And I think, you know, I'm not a philosopher, but if you dig into on a, a deeper level, so they say my body, my choice, but then they present other reasons like you mentioned. So economic reasons, or maybe they have other children or whatever else, go down the laundry list. If those are reasons to deny the humanity of someone else or the personhood of someone else, you're going to end up denying the humanity and personhood of various other types of human beings who are not inside a woman's body. So the elderly or the disabled or whatever, you can't justify abortion on those sorts of grounds without also um, inadvertently denying the humanity of other categories that most people don't want to deny the humanity of. Uh, and so there's not really any consistent argument here for abortion on those terms. And, and that's why I think as pro-lifers, we have to respond with, of course, it's difficult for women, but here are a variety of ways short of killing uh, that might be helpful to her, uh, you know, some things like crisis pregnancy centers or whatever else. And so acknowledge the hardship, but uh, point out that even for the woman, killing the innocent is not a solution. No mother is better off for having killed her child. Yeah. The Supreme Court recently handed down a decision in June Medical Services v. Russo, uh, the most recent case dealing with abortion to come before the Supreme Court. Uh, say a word about that case and maybe what you think the case might suggest about the court's willingness or lack thereof uh, to re-examine Roe v. Wade. Yeah, so the case dealt with uh, what's called an admitting privileges law. This is a law that Louisiana put in place requiring abortionists in the state to have admitting privileges at a local hospital. Um, and every other provider, any other kind of outpatient surgical center in the state has to have these admitting privileges by law already. And Louisiana was essentially trying to close a loophole that was allowing abortionists to get away with not having these privileges. Um, and the idea of the policy is that if a woman were to have some kind of serious side effects during an abortion procedure, a surgical abortion, she would be able to get into a local hospital more easily for follow-up care. Um, and so this policy was challenged by abortion providers in the state claiming that they were suing on behalf of women. It went to the Supreme Court and the decision um, the law was struck down by the four, I guess, liberal justices, you might say, who um, 
believe essentially that it, it imposes a burden on women's access to abortion. And they were joined by Chief Justice John Roberts, who in this extremely interesting and rather incoherent, in my view, um, concurrence said that, well, I still agree that admitting privileges laws are, you know, should be allowed. Um, I guess it, it goes back to 2016 and, and whole woman's health. It's a bit complicated, but essentially he said, because of stare decisis, because we've struck down laws like this in the past, I have to vote to strike it down again, even though I believe they should be permitted, which to me makes no sense. Yeah. Um, this is a four, it's been four years between the two cases. And the chief justice is saying that, well, we decided wrongly before in striking down a law like this, but because we made that wrong decision, we have to abide by it and continue striking down these laws. And to me, that's not what stare decisis means. Again, not a lawyer, not a philosopher, but if you can't ever strike down wrong decisions, even a mere four years later, what is the purpose of the Supreme Court? You can't fix incorrect jurisprudence later when you have the votes to do it. Um, and so you, you ask what we do, what this means for the pro-life movement going forward. To me, this is a pretty bad sign because if a state can't even, at the very least, require abortionists to follow the same laws as any other provider in the state that provides surgeries, what can a state do? How can a state regulate abortion at all? This is not even about restricting access to abortion, about you know limiting when in pregnancy a woman can obtain an abortion. It's the bare minimum asking abortionists to provide you know, follow-up care if it's needed or provide access to follow-up care. And that's not permitted under our jurisprudence. So I think that kind of signals a need for a more aggressive strategy on the part of the pro-life movement. Well, let's talk about what that aggressive strategy might be. Uh, this case, June Medical, came on the heels of the court's decision in Bostock v. Clayton County, in which the court, in an opinion authored, as you know, by Justice Neil Gorsuch, held that an employer may not discriminate against an employee based on that employee's sexual preference um, or gender identity. Uh, this is distinct from gender. Uh, when the Bostock decision came down, I thought first of our friend, uh, Professor Adrian Vermeule at Harvard Law School, uh, who has been counseling conservatives for some time now not to put our faith in judges. Um, indeed, for some, perhaps many conservatives, this case has been taken as further proof that an adherence to the jurisprudential methods you mentioned, textualism, originalism, and the nomination and confirmation of originalist and textualist judges and justices is a losing proposition. Uh, is this something you've given much thought to both as a general matter um, and as it relates to abortion cases that have come or will come before the court in the future? You know, I, I have thought about it a lot. And I think, um, especially when it comes to something like abortion, you kind of notice the problem with how much weight we put on the judiciary and how much power it has in abortion policy. Because, um, so I, I like to give the example of uh, last year, there were a bunch of laws having to do with abortion passed at the state level. And several of them were in blue states that were loosening restrictions on abortion, essentially allowing abortion at any point until pregnancy, uh, by and large, for any reason. And then on the flip side, you had a bunch of red states passing things like heartbeat bills that prohibit abortion starting around six weeks, and in some cases, passing total bans on abortion. Um, and so this was kind of portrayed by the media as well. Uh, you know, there's uh, laws on both sides of abortion getting passed. This is a this big fight happening in America. But if you look more closely, the only laws that actually took effect unchallenged were the laws in blue states loosening abortion restrictions. Meanwhile, all the heartbeat bills, the pro-life laws in these red states were struck down one by one by judges after challenges were brought by Planned Parenthood and, and other pro-abortion groups. And none of those laws is in effect today. Meanwhile, the blue state laws are all in effect. And so what that signals to me is that 
because of Roe v. Wade and all these subsequent cases over the, the course of the last few decades, the judiciary has an immense amount of power um, over what pro-life laws can take effect and which can, as we, we saw in June Medical that we just discussed. And I think that's not, you know, I'm not an expert, again, on the founding. I, I keep having to say that this isn't my, these things aren't my area of expertise, but I think it's pretty clear that the Constitution does not give the judiciary power to just make an entire body of policy for the entire nation on something that is not even mentioned by name in the Constitution. And yet we have this just overgrown, massive, sprawling, powerful judiciary that is basically writing policy for every state on abortion in favor of the pro-abortion movement. Uh, and so you, you mentioned Bostock. In my view, we just, on social issues, the court has claimed way too much power for itself. And I don't know how one would go about reversing that, but I would point to um, Justice Clarence Thomas in the, the dissent that he wrote in June Medical pointing out just how wrong from the very beginning the court's abortion jurisprudence has been. And it just needs to be totally leveled. And we have to start over and this has to happen either at the state level or we have to acknowledge, I think that um, the constitution probably protects unborn human life. That's a debate on the pro-life side, I guess, but uh, just in general, I would say it's, there's too much power in the judiciary. Yeah, um, and I'm curious uh, what electoral significance you think a decision like Bostock, um, like even June Medical, uh, might have. It was one of then-candidate Trump's campaign promises uh, to nominate originalist judges and justices to the courts, and I don't think there's any doubt this helps secure votes for him that uh, from otherwise uh, perhaps skeptical voters. Do you see an electoral significance coming here in an election year? Yeah, I think June Medical in particular is a, a kind of helpful, I, I hated the decision, obviously, but if you're um, a fan of President Trump and want to see him reelected, I think that's probably something that the campaign will make hay with, as they say, and the pro-life movement in particular can say, look, the two justices that President Trump appointed voted the right way on this. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts did not. And, you know, who do you want uh, in the White House the next four years appointing perhaps one or two more justices, you want more people who are going to, to vote the right way. Unfortunately, I think Gorsuch's vote in Bostock was um, obviously a disappointment to the conservative legal world and um, social conservatives as well. And so, but I mean, to, to my view, in my view, rather, um, you know, you're not going to win every case. And if you take more power out of judiciary and, and don't have so many things coming before them, uh, where they get to essentially write law, that would be a win, but you're not going to win everything. I don't think that uh, Justice Gorsuch is some kind of secret liberal who thinks that he has a political responsibility to reshape the law. Like I, I just think he he honestly made a mistake and in, in, um, applied textualism incorrectly. But that's not an argument against originalist justices. And and I think um, yeah, this is something that will probably direct more votes to Trump. Um, I'm curious about your experience with with the pro life uh, movement. You're on the ground. What's the state of the movement? Uh, what successes do you think it can claim for itself? Um, I, I guess I would go back to what we were talking about with public opinion. Um, you know, there's been a lot of a shift over the last few decades towards at least a, a slightly more pro-life view and more um, people favoring abortion restrictions. And I think that's in large part because of the tenacity of the pro-life movement. And, you know, um, you know, something I've been thinking about and contrasting with that a lot is what happened in the argument for marriage. And so Professor George obviously was at the forefront of that fight uh, a few years back, and there were some, you know, a few other voices making the case for traditional marriage, you know, nature, uh, marriage as by its nature between one man and one woman. But I don't think there were many voices doing that, and a lot of people just kind of retreated into, well, you know, you can redefine marriage if you want to, just leave religious people alone, let us do what we want in our private spaces, um, and contrast that with the pro-life movement where we didn't say, 
after Roe, okay, do what you want with abortion, just leave us alone, make sure we don't have to be complicit, we don't have to pay for it. No, pro-lifers just kept making the case that abortion is killing, this can't be legal, we're not gonna stop until this is fixed. Um, and I think because of that, it's borne a lot of fruit. And unfortunately, um, sort of because of what we were talking about with the power that the judiciary has over this issue, it hasn't always borne fruit in a policy context um, because many of the, the sort of policy pushes end up being struck down, challenged and then struck down. Um, but on the cultural level, I think uh, the momentum is certainly growing. And in my view, it's not going to go away until the issue is totally fixed. Yeah. Uh, so you do see uh, causes for optimism, the tenacity, the shift in public opinion? I guess so. I wouldn't say I'm an optimist, um, an immediate optimist. Like, I don't think that, given especially the June medical decision, my hope was that that would be a chance to overrule or overturn whole women's health, allow states to uh, impose admitting privileges laws, and maybe would signal a willingness on the part of this court to incrementally roll back some of the just overreaching jurisprudence on abortion. Um, that didn't end up being the case. So in terms of, you know, you have to unfortunately get all those cases undone for pro-life policy to take effect. And so because of that, I'm not terribly optimistic at the moment about getting a lot of policy wins. But I do think because of the nature of the issue and because of the view of pro-lifers that this is the greatest human rights abuse and catastrophe of our time, it's not like, you know, one day all of us are just going to stop and go away and, you know, give up. Like this is going to be... Um, I've been reading a lot about the Civil War and, and slavery and abolition lately, and I see so many parallels there. And I think it's something, hopefully it would never come to war, but this is something that's going to have to come to a head in our country. It's not going to just go away and end up with this, the pro-abortion landscape we have right now. Uh, you mentioned parallels between the question of abortion and the slave interest that led ultimately to the Civil War. Uh, one parallel that seems to be apt here is the shift from, in the founding period, slavery being treated as a necessary evil here. Uh, we can't do anything about it without union being rendered impossible. Uh, to slavery being portrayed as a positive good. Have we seen a similar shift in opinion on abortion, uh, at least from pro-abortionists? Yes, we absolutely have, unfortunately. And um, the most telling example of that is how in the 90s, Bill Clinton pioneered this phrase, this safe, legal, and rare uh, motto about abortion, saying, look, you know, the implication being no one really loves this, but we kind of need it. So safe, legal and rare. And um, last year during one of the Democratic debates, Tulsi Gabbard, the um, Hawaii representative who is running for president, uh, said that she believes abortion should be safe, legal and rare, said she would support limitations on abortion in the last three months of pregnancy. And the far left, you know, abortion advocacy groups and even other Democratic uh, politicians jumped on her for this and said, this is, you know, how dare you say this? And the word rare stigmatizes abortion and makes women who've had abortions feel badly. And, you know, all this, this stuff about how, how, you know, you can't say this anymore. And so it's been, what, two decades now. And this phrase, or three, three decades, I guess, math. Um, but, it, you know, it's been 30 years, I guess, since Bill Clinton came up with this phrase. And, and now it's just not permitted in the Democratic Party anymore because, they have to, uh, they're sort of coalescing around this view that you have to talk about abortion as a social good, as something that's good for women, as something that women don't regret. You know, women who regret abortions or say they were coerced into abortion are entirely silenced by the pro-abortion movement because they, they're sort of creating this positive social good ethic around abortion. It's, as you say, um, exactly what happened with slavery. It has to create its own ethic that ratifies it as a good thing and that everyone else must go along with and ratify as well and validate as a good thing. It can't simply be a, a necessary evil. Yeah, I, I recall now um, my senior year of 
college, I walked into the cafeteria one day, and this was not long after the, the March for Life in Washington, D.C., and I walk in the cafeteria, and there is a group of students hosting a, uh, a shout your abortion rally is what they called it. And of course, the implication being that an abortion is not something to be embarrassed about. It, it's not something that is just a necessary evil, uh, something to be proud of, something to celebrate. Uh, and that does seem to be, uh, that does seem to be new. Uh, so we talked a little bit about the judiciary and either what they're doing or declining to do on the issue. What about our elected officials, uh, congressmen, presidents? How are they handling the abortion question? Well, I guess, um, in Congress, not much has been happening. You know, that President Trump during his 2016 campaign promised that defunding Planned Parenthood was going to be a, a top line issue for his administration. That didn't end up happening for a variety of reasons. I think there's a pretty good case to be made that most Republicans in Congress would prefer just to kind of pay lip service to the issue and do a few votes having to do with it around the March for Life and then just kind of push it to the side. And they know pro-lifers don't really have much choice, unfortunately. Uh, when it comes to who to vote for. And so they sort of keep those votes in their back pocket and off they go. And they don't really um, push much policy on the issue at all, unfortunately. Uh, one exception would be, one major exception would be um, Senator Ben Sass, who for two years in a row now has reintroduced his Born Alive Abortion Survivors Protection Act, which would require doctors to treat infants who survive an abortion uh, the same as they treat any other newborn infant. And that has unfortunately failed now twice, but it got a vote. Um, and it forced Democrats to take a stance on this issue. And unfortunately, by and large, most of them voted against it and blocked the bill. And while obviously that's very depressing and I'd rather have the legislation passed, having that fight, bringing that bill to the floor, having that fight, forcing Democrats to vote, puts them on record and kind of exposes, I think, the, the radicalness of uh, the pro-abortion position. And unfortunately, the kind of logical, the frightening logical consistency of the pro-abortion position. Um, so that would be a, a big exception. And I think the Trump administration has done a few good things here and there, you know, defunding abortion providers through Title X was one, uh, I guess, reinstating the Mexico City policy to make sure that abortion isn't funded overseas uh, by the U.S. But I guess I would like to see a little bit more um, fervor from, <laughs> from national officials. Returning to the pro-life movement, is there anything you think ought to be changed in order for the movement to achieve success going forward? Um, you know, I think it, it's sort of difficult to say because as a matter of legal strategy, there is always a good case for sort of pushing the incremental type of legal strategy that would get something like June Medical before the Supreme Court in the hopes that, uh, you know, the more um, nervous justices, Justice Robert, Chief Justice Roberts would be uh, willing to kind of take some incremental swings at abortion jurisprudence. So I don't begrudge anybody who favored that strategy. And I myself uh, thought it was probably more prudent than sort of the heartbeat bill strategy, trying to get that in front of a court, because if the court won't even allow an admitting privileges law, why on earth would they allow you to restrict abortion at six weeks? Um, but going forward, you know, it's not that we should entirely, pro-lifers should entirely abandon the idea of an incremental legal strategy, but there is something to be said for going right at the heart of Roe and enforcing courts to the extent that you can get them to, to take these cases, forcing courts uh, in the Supreme Court eventually to reckon with the fact that they, not they themselves, but the court itself created, like I said, the abortion landscape that we have. And it's responsible, as, as Justice Thomas has written in, in several dissents over the last couple of years, um, it's responsible for fixing that. And just because this, the nine justices on the court today were not the ones who voted that way in row, they are responsible for undoing the absurd damage that has been caused 
by Roe v. Wade. And so eventually I think it's going to require getting cases that challenge Casey and Roe before them and, you know, demanding via the pro-life legal argument that they reckon with that um, and undo it. And I don't know at what point that will come, but I think it's pretty clear now that that challenging Casey and Roe and, and the very the foundations of the pro-abortion legal argument um, has to happen at a cultural and, and policy level. I mean, I could quibble with uh, maybe the kind of leniency of some pro-life groups towards Republicans who don't really seem to prioritize policy on the issue very much. Uh, but I also understand the impulse to kind of take what you can get. And there's no question that at the state level, the pro-life movement is um, making gains. The idea that you would have, you know, something like 10 states passing bills that they know are going to get struck down immediately. Uh, I think that's a good sign. There's kind of an, an energy there uh, that maybe doesn't seem merited by the judicial landscape that we have, but I think it's necessary if you ever want to get anything done. Well, I encourage all listeners, if they're interested in learning more about uh, the question of abortion in America today and the pro-life movement, to read Alexandra's work, to, to follow along. And Alexandra, thanks so much for joining us today on Madison's Notes. Yes, of course. Thanks for having me. Well, there you have it. Alexandra De Sanctis on abortion and the pro-life movement in America. You can find Alexandra on Twitter at Zan, that's X-A-N underscore DeSanctus. And you can read her work at National Review and elsewhere. I'll just add in closing that if you're enjoying the podcast so far, please be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Uh, I'll go ahead and bring things to a close there. Look forward to having you back with us next time here on Madison's Notes. <laughs>